Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia. And I'm talking again today with Ivan Shmatko and Daphna Rachok. Ivan is a doctoral student in criminology at the University of Alberta in Canada. And Daphna is a doctoral candidate in anthropology at the University of Indiana in the United States. However, both are from Ukraine and both Ivan and Daphna have been in Ukraine since before Russia's full-scale invasion on the 24th of February this year. I did chat to Ivan and Daphna in a previous episode, episode 66, if listeners would like to check it out, where we talked more generally about the war in Ukraine and civil mobilization during the war, as well as the galvanizing of Ukrainian resolve. So that was a really fascinating discussion, and I recommend listeners check it out if you haven't already listened to that episode. But today we're going to delve a little bit more into Ukrainian society, politics, culture, identity. So thanks very much for joining me again today, Ivan and Daphna. Thank you so much for inviting us. Thanks for having us. So first of all, I know that Daphna, in your research, you've looked at issues regarding public health conditions for more vulnerable groups. Could you say a bit about your research and how what you've discovered reflects on the nature of civil society in Ukraine? Yeah, sure. It's a great question and I will and I can go on and on and on about it, but mm-hmm. I'll try to contain myself. Talking about some of the things that I uh, found out as I was doing my research, I'll start by saying that quite often when when you are talking to Ukrainians about about the state, about different governmental um, entities, people have a lot to say. And usually it's not really good stuff that they have to say. People would criticize how the Ministry of Health work, how different like public health centers attached to the Ministry of Health work. But actually then when you start kind of like following people on their daily routines, following people around, understanding how all these like the nitty gritty of this stuff, how the gist of the things work, you, I, I was actually quite amazed at, at the fact that it was way more functional than I imagined from what people were telling me. Because for instance, that really in the last like five or seven years, there was some uh, very good progress in Ukrainian public health happening, especially with regard to vulnerable groups like um, people who use drugs, sex workers, people who are um, in prisons, jails, because for instance, there were like functioning state programs that were supplying, for instance, like methadone and buprenorphine for people who were using street opioids. And uh, if uh, people don't know, methadone and buprenorphine are essentially harm reduction medicines. So the idea behind this program is that if you want to uh, quit um, street drugs, you sign up for one of these programs and you show up consistently to a place where you get your uh, daily dose of methadone or buprenorphine. And uh, these uh, medicine, essentially, it helps you function. You um, It binds to the same uh, things in our brain that these like street drugs bind to, but it doesn't give you this high. It uh, helps you avoid the abstinence syndrome. So essentially, you are like a functioning member of society, and you don't have like you don't have uh, this need to find money in order to buy street drugs, right? So it essentially provides you this like stability in life. And for the last seven years, 
these programs for people who uh, use drugs, Ukraine was funding it from the state budget, which was really a great achievement. At first, there were like a lot of uh, international donors providing us with, uh, uh, with medicine itself. Like with each year, really, the state was signing up for more and more responsibilities towards its people. And what's more, there were even small like coordinating councils that were created at the level of each oblast. And there is also like a national coordinating council. It, it's a council, but it functions at the level of the cabinet of ministry. And essentially representatives from these vulnerable groups, they had a say, essentially. They could talk to different governmental officials and say like, hey, you know, like this stuff is not working. Uh, when the war broke out and there were uh, fears that methadone and buprenorphine that there will be essentially like not enough medicine for some of the people. The public health center in Ukraine, it's an entity that reports to the Ministry of Health in Ukraine. So the public health center, they even created like weekly online meetings with the main uh, representatives of vulnerable groups, mainly uh, people who use drugs from each region. And so like every like certain work day, at a certain time, everyone joins in and the public health center, they report to these people and then uh, representatives from vulnerable groups, they can talk to, talk to the government officials, they can say like, you know, this is working, like this is not working. So essentially, like there is this dialogue, so that both sides are keeping each other accountable. And I thought that really, it's amazing. Also, like the mere fact that these meetings are happening every week during the war well i think it really tells you something about the progress that has been accomplished in this sphere of public health mm -hmm. yeah it's very striking that this continued even during a time of war like obviously war disrupts everybody's lives but i can imagine that for certain vulnerable groups it would be even more disruptive because if some ways if you're relying on state services you're relying on public services it's not obvious that there would be the capacity to organize around supporting those groups during that time. Some of the things that Daphne mentioned, I think listeners could think, well, yeah, sure, of course they have this program. What's particular about it? You mm -hmm. have to understand the baseline, right? The baseline was late Soviet society and 90s after Ukraine got its independence the beginning of 2000s, many of those policies did not exist. Right, there were also laws criminalizing LGBTQ people. Mm. So what's important is the baseline. And the second baseline that is important is that Ukraine is a very poor state. So when the state starts to fund this kind of things, it means a lot, right? Because for a long time, it was subsidized by international organizations. State just could not do that job and didn't really want to do that job of course mm -hmm. like still the amount that the state can allocate for these programs it's a smaller amount right. that uh, an international organization probably would have allocated but again like this readiness to assume this responsibility to try to guarantee the stability of these programs again it tells you a lot i think about this like direction that, that the state uh, is ready to move towards so, I mean, now the war has been going on for more than five months. What have you seen in the progression of the organization of those activities? Has that settled into some kind of more scheduled routine or has there been more of a breakdown of those services as it's become obvious that we're really settling into, you know, a longer condition of wartime? 
So I would say that there were many things happening because it depended partly on the period in the war because uh, when everything just happened uh, in the late February 2022, there was this shock, of course, and because like a lot of people, they were, uh, they were fleeing cities, they were like evacuating very quickly and a lot of these people who were evacuating, they also could be like social workers, of course. So at the first months of the war, there was this certain like breakdown of these established um, infrastructures, established established ways to get things done. There was, of course, this change that there are certain limitations in the state budgets, right? Because now when we are at the time of war, I just, I don't want to say like martial law because martial law has a lot of uh, negative connotations, right? But uh, essentially we are this the state of war now and the, so the priorities in the state spending, they have also changed, right? Some of the programs, they may not enjoy the same funding that they used they used to before. The state entity, the public health center of Ukraine, it was very responsive. It said like, okay, so like we are not able to organize things as well as we were doing it uh, in the previous years because of all these limitations. So uh, all these organizations that we used to support from our budgets, we can now like transfer them to international donors and you essentially can fund them for this time being and then after the war end after things kind of like go back to normal we will step back in because we don't want to leave people hanging dry right we want for these services to continue to be provided but i think that if we're talking about all these public health services for vulnerable groups what needs to be mentioned is that first of all there was hell of a like grassroots response that I was really amazed by that was a tailor to people who were fleeing the occupied areas. And uh, you probably know that almost all of the Kherson region and a huge chunk of the uh, Zaporizhia re region, as well as Donetsk and Luhansk, they are now occupied. So like a lot of people from those regions, they uh, started going to some of the other central uh, regions. For instance, the Dnipropetrovsk region, it, it has now like a lot of, a lot of uh, people who were fleeing from the war zone. And I even witnessed it that um, sometimes when there was like lack of certain, like like a certain medicine on a certain site and a person was um, kind of like complaining that like, well, I fled Donetsk region and what, uh, what is happening here? I'm not like getting as the same like dose of, um, of methadone that I was getting before and blah, blah, blah. And you know what other people uh, did who were also like taking methadone at this site? They essentially shared with that person. They were like, okay, we don't want you to suffer from this abstinence syndrome so you know if each of us takes these like 10 milligrams and gives it to you you'll have your usual doses and these 10 milligrams will not kind of like do a lot of difference for us so and there was a lot of these things happening on different levels and a lot of doctors they were being uh, incredibly understanding they were even being like very informal up to the point of kind of doing like shady things for the benefit of the patients. I don't want to name the city or the doctor, of course, but there were even stories when people who fled the war zone, they didn't have any documents on them because those documents were lost or sometimes those documents, they could be, they could just be burned if a shell landed in your house, of course. And some of the doctors, in order to ensure that the patient uh, gets uh, their therapy on time, they were saying like, okay, so, 
we will like create a fake identity for you in this database and you will get your medicine because you know what combination of uh, drugs you're taking but then please go ahead renew your documents come back to us with these documents and then like we will fix everything in the database it indicates the type of spontaneous organization even amongst other patients right like saying okay we'll share our medical doses with you or amongst doctors etc and were you personally involved in those organizational chains in ensuring that internally displaced persons or other types of groups had the sort of things that they needed under those conditions Partially, yes. Uh, some of our volunteering it uh, grew out of the social networks that we were embedded in. And part of those networks were um, different people um, with whom I was in contact because of my research. Like one of the things, for instance, that we were, and to some extent still um, involved in, we were buying medicine and sending it to the people with HIV who are still on the occupied territories. Because the situation on the occupied territories is not even like borderline horrific it's just horrific because people were even asking to send them such simple medicine like ibuprofen because there is almost nothing and of course if you're an HIV positive person who is left there now you don't really have access to the medicine that you were taking in order to have the viral suppression and so like a lot of people, if they ran out of the therapy, they are now sitting uh, without the therapy. And so they have all these like opportunistic infections that were also like suppressed in, when they were taking therapy. All these infections are kind of like blossoming now. So like we were getting these elites of medicine that we need to send to these people in the occupied territories. And obviously it's it's quite difficult to do now. So like, we would go and like try to find like everything that we can. And then with these like system of, Couriers, I would send uh, all these medicines uh, via via post to one of the uh, towns in the Zaporizhia Oblast, and then a person from Zaporizhia Oblast would take this uh, cargo and will go to um, Kherson and to other places to give it to people who who need it. I think it must be mentioned that for people who don't know the context. Russia and non-governmental organizations in Russia, for example, that were trying to do this job, they oftentimes now called so-called foreign agents, right? Oppressed by the state, limited in what they can do. Sometimes the police would come and take their computers and open the criminal cases against people who were trying to, to help, for example, people who use drugs. And uh, the state in general is not that open. Many things are criminalized in Ukraine still, but in Russia, it's kind of part of the regime's politics. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, why are those medicines suddenly not available? And it's kind of amazing to me that you have those communications and logistics networks with people who are in occupied cities or, you know, parts of Ukraine that are now occupied. But why are those basic medicines not available? Like, is that because there's been a complete breakdown of medical networks in those places? Or is it more because of what Ivan is saying that actually maybe those people are no longer considered that they are worthy of receiving that medical help. I think it's both. It's a breakdown of uh, the infrastructure, right? You have to have this kind of developed infrastructure and logistics that works every day without interruptions so that people get their medicine and so on and so on. And when it's interrupted, obviously, then everything goes sideways. But at the same time, it's also influenced by narcophobic policies that exist in Russia, and especially in the Donetsk and Luhansk region, where if you are a drug user, 
you can be imprisoned, tortured, and there are many, many stories of that kind. Because it essentially became a state policy that people who use drugs are non-people. Because Russia is quite conservative and Russian regime, but the Dansk and Lugansk republics, they're even more conservative. You can, it's, a, it's a different topic, but it's actually connected. For example, death penalty, right? It's restored in the Dansk and Lugansk republics and things like that that are completely impossible right now in Ukraine. Once again, it doesn't mean that Ukraine is perfect and everything is good. Mm -hmm. What's happening in Russia and uh, in occupied territories in, in Ukraine, what has been happening, it's moving in different directions. There is a certain progress in Ukraine. It's changing in positive ways, but in, in Russia... And yeah, and also yeah. just if we think back about, uh, think back to uh, 2014 when uh, Crimea was essentially occupied after this mm -hmm. fake referendum uh, took place, after Russia came, it quickly dismantled all harm reduction programs, all harm reduction infrastructure mm -hmm. that was in there. And there is a really nice article written by uh, medical anthropologist Jennifer, Jennifer Carroll, and she shows essentially how the number of deaths from like opioid overdose, it just, it skyrocketed after all those like programs were dismantled. Mm -hmm. And even in 2022, unfortunately, even I um, encountered that, well, like some of the people whom I knew who were like harm reduction, who were patients of these harm reductions programs that were like in place in Ukraine, and they were just like having their like quote unquote normal lives. Unfortunately, some of these people, they died because they were living in these occupied territories and they couldn't really get access to these life-saving medications that they were relying on for the last seven to ten years. But the Crimea shows exactly mm. why we are talking not just about the disruption in logistics and infrastructure, mm. but about policies that exist in Russia as well. Because in Crimea, the occupation went without the destruction of the infrastructure, right? So Crimea essentially was not bombed. So the infrastructure was not torn apart. Uh, everything was supposed to work as it was working. It was the, the policy, the Russian policy, which is that caused those deaths. And it was mm -hmm. um, also very funny and very and fantastic at the same time for me to see that when these full-scale invasion broke out, a lot of people, a lot of my participants, people from vulnerable groups, they mobilized instantly and they were like, okay, so how can we support Ukrainian armed forces? And now, for instance, uh, a lot of people uh, who patients of these uh, harm reduction programs, they take methadone or buprenorphine, and they weekly meet in the office of one of these organizations, and they weave masking nets for the armed forces of Ukraine. And there is a lot of stuff like that, how the whole like, society mobilized after February 24th in order to do something, in order to help the war effort. And this is just like yet another example that everyone was, okay, like, what skills do I have that may be useful in this situation? Oh, I was in prison and there we were whipping masking nets. I can use this skill now. So come to this office and bring please clothes of this, this and this color and together we will weave beautiful masking nets. You indicated there that, I mean, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union and then there was a breakdown of the Soviet Union, Ukraine became its own independent state. I know that Ukraine has a long history as well, so I don't want to sort of say anything inaccurate here, but, but I'm sure that in some ways culture, society and politics were sort of 
entangled with what was existing during the Soviet Union for some period of time. And, you know, and then there was that further creation of this real sense of an independent and separate Ukrainian identity. And I think alongside that, also the creation of an increasingly different type of politics. We see Ukraine moving more towards a democratic political regime a different type maybe of civil society, like we can really see and particularly seeing that with the full-scale Russian invasion, but also in previous years, like a very vibrant civil society in Ukraine. And without sort of making overly simplistic generalizations, can you talk a bit more about how you experience your Ukrainian identity, how you experience Ukrainian politics, society and culture and Maybe if you have reflections on how that's diverged from how it was under the Soviet Union. Yeah, so I would say that in some ways, and uh, many people in Ukraine, especially currently, would not agree with me because of certain sentiments right, that war has caused. Ukrainians and Russians actually have a lot in common. And it's a normal thing to say if you don't weaponize this idea, right? And what Russia did, and that's precisely the reason why many Ukrainians would start to argue with me right now, because they know that the idea is weaponized by the Russia to say, hey, we are the one nation and therefore we have to occupy you. That's why there is a certain feedback in Ukraine, right? To say, no, we have nothing in common. But there is a common experience. People who live currently in Ukraine, most of those people, and most of the people who lived in Russia, they lived in quite similar conditions. They solved quite similar problems. And that shaped the cultures, the many, many ways in which people think, do things, and so on and so on. If you meet a person from Russia, for example, in Canada, right, where I study, we have a friend from Russia there. We have a lot of things to talk about, about, for example, how everything is organized in Canada. Because our friend, he lived most of his life in Russia, we lived most of our life in Ukraine, and when we come to Canada... We find the same things weird, we find the same things annoying, we find the same things surprisingly nice, and so on and so on. Because a lot of a lot of the ways in which life is organized in Russia and Ukraine is are quite similar. Once again, it doesn't mean that it's the same nation or there is a same culture. It just means that, well, if people live together for a long time, their societies tend to be organized in more or less similar ways, right? And obviously, Slavic people in general, their languages are quite close. Once again, it doesn't mean that it's the same language. Uh, I don't know, Czech language is quite close to Ukrainian or Polish. It doesn't mean that there is one Slavic language or that all Slavic languages are Russian, right? The same goes for Ukrainian and Russian. So there is some distance, right? And it is important to note that since uh, 1991, differences started to grow. You can see I was born in 1988. Through my lifetime, I could see that at the beginning, when I was more or less conscious human being, I knew much more about what's going on in Russia, in terms of music, in terms of culture, in terms of news, and so on and so on. Then later on, because there was a divergent path for culture, for politics, for everything, people started to grow apart. This process was pretty much fastened by political events, because despite those differences, countries were quite close. Most of the people in Ukraine either used Russian or knew Russian. We kind of talked that most of people 
in Ukraine are bilingual and most of those bilingual people know both Ukrainian and Russian. So it, for Ukrainians at least, it was quite easy to follow what's going on in Russia. But in 2004, when there was a so-called Orange Revolution, there was already a lot of this kind of geopolitical debate about where we are going. Are we going to integrate with the West or are we going to integrate with Russia? The same thing essentially happened in 2014. Protests themselves started with the non-signature, so to say, of the European Association Agreement. Russia, through all these events and all these years, was actively trying to push and sometimes even force Ukraine to change its direction, to choose Russia instead of the West. And the more Russia was trying to force Ukraine and Ukrainians the bigger was the backlash at the beginning of the war in 2014, pushed many Ukrainians even further apart from Russia, and not only politically, but also culturally. Many people made a conscious decision to switch to Ukrainian, at least in their uh, public life. Many of the TV channels, radio channels, music. The more Russia was trying to force Ukraine closer, the more Ukrainian society was growing apart. And that influenced, once again, not just political things, but everyday things, music, what, whatever you can think about. And that meant that uh, also you would know less about Russia and Russians would actually know less about what's actually happening in Ukraine. So societies were growing apart. Policy would become different in Russia and Ukraine. Laws would become different. The types of uh, the cinema that is produced in Ukraine and Russia became different. All, all the things that you can imagine were growing apart. And of course, when the full-scale scale invasion started, and many people talk about it, I think it's quite evident if you're in Ukraine. That it was a symbolic moment in many ways for many, many Ukrainians that reinforced the idea or even made this idea actually real for many Ukrainians that Ukraine became an independent nation, not just formally, but fully separated from Russia. It's absolutely impossible after February 24th to imagine Ukraine ever becomes close to Russia or even becomes a part of Russia. Once again, the same pattern was there. The even bigger push by Russia to make Ukraine closer resulted in just the opposite. Ukrainians finally started to identify fully not just some groups as, as, as Ukrainians. This is quite evident almost everywhere. The, the separate identity finally became not just a feature of some political movements, some political parties. Essentially, no mainstream party nowadays can somehow say, hey, let's become closer to Russia. We are one people, we have one experience. It's completely impossible for, for many, many, many years, for sure. Mm -hmm. Many people actually talk about what happened after February 24th. So there is this idea, obviously, it's not always like that. But there is this idea that many nations, uh, in order to be established, they actually had to fight a war to get that independence, right? It doesn't it always work like that, thanks God. But oftentimes it worked, unfortunately, like that. And many people call this war a patriotic war. What they mean by that is the first that almost all society mobilized to fight this war. But the second part is that actually it's 
this kind of war that establishes a nation, not just on the paper, but in the minds of the people who live in Ukraine. To add mm -hmm. a quick yeah. joke to that, on Russian state media, you can sometimes hear about the Russophobia that is uh, going on, that is blossoming in Ukraine. And in Ukraine, people are often cracking a joke that, well, like, Russia is really the main sponsor of Russophobia in Ukraine. Yeah, and part of the whole idea of being Ukrainian nowadays, obviously, is being anti-Russia. So the very same thing that was quoted by Putin before February 24th as the reason to invade Ukraine, because in his famous speech on February 22nd, I think, right? It was exactly what he was talking about. He was talking that we cannot allow for Ukraine to become anti-Russia. And that's exactly what happened, which partly helps actually with some cultural things like attitudes towards LGBTQ people or public health matters. Because in Russia, conservative approaches dominate, many Ukrainians actually become relatively progressive in order not to be like Russians. People who would uh, show quite conservative views on, on many issues, after February 24th, you talk with them and they're like, you know what, I will consider that I don't want to be like them, <laughs> which is a very unintended consequence of the whole endeavor, right? And also like a colleague, a colleague of mine, she's now trying to introduce like sorting garbage um, in her apartment building. And she's also using this argument like, well, like we are not Russians to dump everything into one dumpster. So please, plastic goes here, glass goes here. And um, sometimes like maybe counterintuitively, but it works. Yeah, it's like for Putin, you know, creating what he's afraid of or creating what he thinks he's fighting against. Also, a lot of the most severe bombing is taking place in areas, you know, if we look at like Mariupol or other cities, in areas where there may conceivably before the 24th of February have been people who actually thought that Russia was in some ways a benevolent power or a benevolent state. But then certainly after what's happened after the 24th of February and the full-scale Russian invasion, I'm imagining that not much of that sentiment is left. Essentially, Russia bombed out and destroyed the very regions that for a long time created the possibility for it to actually have a political and soft power and whatnot in Ukraine, because those regions were voting oftentimes for relatively pro-Russian forces. Once again, when we talk about pro-Russian, it doesn't always mean that those parties wanted for Ukraine to become a part of Russia. There was a part of them, yes. But many people would just want to have a closer ties with Russia or just associate Russia with the Soviet Union, which is not quite correct. But the point is, people have this association. Those parties had influence. For example, Yanukovych became a president, right? Party of Regions, the party of Viktor Yanukovych, for a long time was the main party in Ukraine that actually in many ways legitimately won the elections, parliamentary elections, presidential elections in terms of Viktor Yanukovych. After 2014, party of regions ceased to exist, but there were few parties that took that niche and they still had a lot of power. By some of the polls before February 24th, that party could actually won the elections, even though there was less populations that could vote for them because some of their voters ended up living in Donetsk and Luhansk Republic. Even despite those circumstances, they could win the elections, right? So after February 24th, it's absolutely impossible. No quote-unquote pro-Russian party can win the elections. It's just humanly impossible. One of our friends, a historian, PhD, also a PhD student in my university, as a historian, he mentions this kind of interesting thing that probably on February 24th of this year, 
Donbass ceased to exist. Donbass region essentially was formed in the 19th century when there was an industrialization in the Russian Empire. And that was the beginning of the Donbass as we know it. It, be, it started to be populated. It was relatively scarcely populated before that. The whole separate identity that actually existed in Donbass, this Donbass identity, it wasn't quite Russian, it wasn't quite Ukrainian, it was a regional, strong regional identity, this kind of industrial identity, partly related to coal production, mines. It was created at the beginning of this industrialization. For a long time, Donbass was stagnating, especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union, because it had all this kind of old industries that didn't really fit the modern world, that were not modernized. But on the 24th of February, Russia essentially ended that effort because most of the industrial capabilities and mines and whatnot in the bus are nowadays destroyed. Most of the population either moved to partly Russia, partly Ukraine or Western states as refugees or internally displaced people. Even people who stayed, uh, many of them essentially died because there is a forceful mobilization of men in Donbass. A large chunk of them, we don't know the numbers for sure, obviously, 70% of those who were mobilized killed. So the, essentially that area was deindustrialized starting from 2014 and then uh, February 24th and then depopulated. So that's another outcome mm. of that war. So Russia not just destroyed its base that it could use to influence Ukrainian politics and Ukrainian opinions and culture and whatnot. It also destroyed a very interesting phenomenon that exists because Donbass was very interesting. Mm -hmm. The full-scale invasion since the 24th of February has to have a completely devastating impact on the Donbass region just with what we've been seeing in the last few months. Like the scale of destruction just seems to be massive with whole towns and cities just basically being wiped out. Also hearing a lot about this forced conscription and people actually just being sent, young men being sent into the battles. Not just young men because they mm -hmm. don't have enough young men there. Part of that forceful mobilization was Russia has a big problem with manpower during this war. Because for Ukraine, it's a full-scale war, right? Ukraine mobilizes people because it's a full-scale war. You mobilize people, everybody understands what's going on and why that's happening. Russia, they actually don't mobilize people openly. In Russia, they have to get some incentives in place to pay money for people in these depressed regions to go and sign a contract and go for war. But Donbass is a different thing. There is a different attitude to people in the Donbass than to the Russians in Russia. And what you do with many of those people, you forcefully mobilize them to solve the problem with the manpower because Russia cannot mobilize people in Russia, but they can mobilize people forcefully in the mass region. It's not enough to mobilize young men. They mobilize people who are 60 plus, 50 plus, whatnot. They also mobilize people who are essentially cannot be mobilized because of certain health. Yeah, I mean, I think it's actually really important like to understand what's happening there because a lot of Russia's capacity to continue fighting will depend on having manpower. In Ukraine, there is a, this kind of expectation, very strong expectation, an expectation of the counterattack. Because for months now, the, the authorities and the army command were openly talking about three phases, essentially. The first phase, we have to stop the movement of Russian troops. Then we have to have some kind of stalemate. And the third phase of the counterattack. In Ukraine, there is a very strong resolve to fight back, have a counterattack, 
And also who we trust, mm. also according to the polls, like who among the like politicians of like different like forces you trust. The armed forces of Ukraine, they were like the an institution that Ukrainians are trusted in more than like different like politicians. Mm-hmm. Makes sense that they I mean, not only defending everyone's lives, but also increasingly composed of just regular members of society as well, with those like civilians who've gone to fight. Thank you so much for joining me again today and having the discussion. I've really appreciated it. Thank you so much for inviting us. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you so much for having us. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music.